Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My first impressions of Odoo were as negative as anybody else's. I thought it was very dangerous. I thought it was evil somehow that it would jeopardize my soul to even talk about it. And then I started to ask myself why I was so afraid of something that I didn't know anything about. If you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird, this is the show you just need to hear. Voodoo. Not to be confused with voodoo. It's bastardized Hollywood doppelganger. Bodu is a religion, albeit a gravely misunderstood one. Today, I talk with Sally Ann Glassman, a voodoo priestess. She tells me about her journey from being a Ukrainian-American Jewish woman living in Maine to becoming a voodoo priestess in New Orleans. And we talk about the initiation ceremony in becoming a voodoo priestess. It's a process that's shrouded in mystery. But Sally Ann peels back the curtain just enough to give me a peek at the spiritual and physical gauntlet she went through. And all those Hollywood voodoo myths? Oh yeah, we go there. And we even get into what it's like to be under a possession trance. I'm your host, Sam Balter, and this is Weird Work. Now let's listen to them speak About their jobs, which are quite unique Weird Work First question, kind of a big one. What is Vodou? <laughs> So Vodou is actually a religion, and it's a, a way of, of approaching life and living. It's a philosophy, um, but it's actually a bona fide religion. It, it fulfills the requirements of a religion. There's a, there's a sense of um, metaphysical deity, spirit, and there are practices and, and principles around that belief. Vodou was really carried on the backs of slaves to the new world to to send a ming as haiti was called at the time in louisiana colony and mingled with european catholicism and native american practices and there was even a three penny opera kind of burlesque show that was going on and and contributed some of the characteristics of a couple of the spirits. I want to go uh, a little bit more about just the structure of the religion. So at a top level, is it monotheistic? Is it polytheistic? You know, you can make a case for Vodou being both monotheistic and polytheistic. There is a recognition of a supreme deity called Bon Dieu or Grand Met, good God or the Grand Master. But we humans are limited in our capacity to comprehend God okay. and to relate to God. So between God and humanity are a large number of intermediary and ancestral spirits, and they're collectively referred to as the Loa. And some of these spirits um, come into being, develop over time. Some get forgotten 
They are all both archetypal principles as well as forces of nature. So just for example, Ogu is the warrior spirit and he is the patron of iron. That's his metal. And he relates to fire in the elements. And he is a leader of men in in terms of psychology. Okay. So he has all these different aspects. And the idea is that each of these spirits who were once living people, their ancestors, they've died. They've, they've oh. gotten an elevated perspective on, on life because they have survived death, we could say. They've gone through that initiation. And they're also in the world around us. So they're the water that we bathe in, in the air that we breathe, in the earth that we walk upon, and, and the fire that heats us. And the whole world is an aspect of God's life force. So it sounds like there's a supreme being, but it's not like Christianity or you know some other religions where I might be able to communicate with the supreme being. It's like there's a lot of intermediaries who were, it sounds, I don't know, are they like angels who used to be people and then have changed? Would that be a good analogy or a poor one? I think that's a decent analogy okay. in the way that people think of angels. You might think of them as saints, but with that added attribute of being natural forces as well. You know, Airsley is love and beauty, but she's also fresh water. Okay. So it's sort of a, an additional aspect to them. And they're, they're seen as spirits rather than gods, so they're served rather than worshipped. Do they have human attributes like the way Greek gods do where, you know, like they get angry at times and like they might, you know, do something wrong and are fallible and things like that? Or are they all pretty positive? They definitely have personalities. And some of those personalities are very benevolent and gentle. Some are fiery, revolutionary, angry. A perfect example, again, the, the spirit of love and beauty, Erzali Freda Daomi. Her sister is Erzali Dantor, who is the fiery, revolutionary aspect of love. And it was during a, a ceremony to serve Erzali Dantor when a black pig was sacrificed that set off and really sustained the Haitian revolution. So in Bodu, some of these spirits are really turbulent, some are really gentle, but none of them are seen as either good or bad. They're all seen as powerful and some aspect of God's divinity. And so the goal is to find balance between them all and to let them all express. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your journey. When did you first encounter Vodou? I don't know exactly when I first heard the the word, you know, it's just out there and we all take in usually very negative derogatory images of Odoo and you don't even know where it started. So okay. my first impressions of Odoo were as negative as anybody else's. I thought it was very dangerous. I thought it was evil somehow that it would jeopardize my soul to even talk about it. And then I started to ask myself why I was so afraid of something that I didn't know anything about. And I realized that um, I'm often afraid of the things that are offering me tools to my own power and freedom. And were you religious before you got into Vodou? 
I was always very spiritually oriented. Okay. As far back as I can remember, I saw the world as not a very solid place. I didn't see, literally see physical solid objects as very solid. Instead, I saw a sort of wavery mirror image over what looks like flows of energy to me. Is there anything that happened that sort of expedited your interest in voodoo? Well, initially, I just communicated directly with spirits that maybe other people didn't see. I got very involved in yoga when I was 16, and I've done yoga every day since then. I'm 63 now. (laughs) And um, I came to New Orleans in 1976 because my brother had called me and told me he had a job teaching at Tulane University here. And something in my head just thought voodoo and jazz would be really interesting. So where were you living then? I was living in Kennebunkport, Maine, in my cousin's unheated barn, and it was October 1st and 20 degrees, and I knew I had to go somewhere, but I had no idea where I was going to go, and this phone call precipitated a rather hasty move to New Orleans with my sheepdog and my bird, and I found Vodou and Jazz very interesting. I met a, um, a man from Martinique named Andre, who kind of took me under his wing. He worked at the Voodoo Museum and and started teaching me a few things. I joined a magical fraternal order and became pretty highly initiated in that order. But it didn't really speak to me. Um, I think much more of a mystic than a magician. So... So you just got this like call at one point that your brother was moving down, you moved down with him, and then basically just kind of found your way into this community step by step. Step by step. I, you know, I was a, I was a bartender for 28 years. So, um, you know, it's an interesting irony that, that I was serving a different kind of spirits to people and <laughs> also serving another kind of spirits. Do you have a mentor or a teacher or anybody who kind of took you under their wing to guide you through Vodou? Ultimately, I met a woman in my neighborhood who was the president of an Anfora, a Vodou community in Haiti. And she asked me if I wanted to come with her to Haiti to observe a ceremony. And I went to her house to discuss the possibility. The phone rang. And it was uh, a mutual friend in Haiti saying that the man who would become my mentor there had spoken with the Loa, with the Voodoo spirits, and they told him that I ought to just come and initiate. And I literally didn't know any better. So I said, sure, okay. And (laughs) I thought I was taking some preliminary initiation, but he actually initiated me to Mambo Asagwe, which is the, the full priesthood. Oh, so you thought you were you thought you were just going into like a starter, like sure. small yeah. initiation, and then he's like, "Okay, you're ready for the full thing." Right, and he was just the most magnificent old man. I will never forget meeting him for the first time. I was riding in a friend's sports car in Port-au-Prince, and and for anybody who's never been there, he. he my papa lived in a neighborhood called Bel Air, which is in no way similar to Bel Air, California. No. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's seriously impoverished. And 
I was literally trying to figure out what was house and what was rubble as we're driving oh through God. the streets. And you're, and, wait, you're driving um, in a sports car? I'm in a sports car <laughs> in the backseat of a little tiny sports car. Now, my papa, as I call him, Edgar, he was about seven feet tall, very thin, very dark skin and glittery eyes. And he had a voice that could shake the earth like a didgeridoo. So I'm sitting in the back seat of this car and the car stops and this person folds himself down into the seat next to me. You know, it wasn't that easy for him to fit in the back seat of a sports car. And I knew this person would never again be out of my mind. And lo and behold, he has never left my mind since then. He's absolutely a part of who I am. He changed my life. I would go to Haiti and, and stay in his temple and serve there and, and study. And he would come to New Orleans and stay in my home and teach us and do ceremony with us, lead initiations. He, he was amazing. And after the earthquakes in Haiti, we managed to get him on a, uh, a supply flight on the way out of Haiti. Yeah. And he spent uh, about three months with us. And then his eldest child died in Haiti. Uh-huh. And the family insisted that that he go back for the funeral and you know he was very frail at that point he had been pretty sick and he lasted about a month but all i could say about it was that he lived a really good life and he had an an excellent death he died in his bed asleep at night in his home surrounded by people that he knew and loved so it was an exemplary life story yeah it sounds like an amazing person yeah, he kicked, continues to come and visit us from time to time. Oh, that's so, great. Even though I miss him terribly, we do get to hang out. <laughs> and is this is that kind of relationship between having like a mentor and a mentee or somebody who kind of takes you under their wing as a priest or priestess of Vodou, is that common? I think it is. I was really blessed to have the mentor that I had. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that was outstanding about him is I'm white, I'm Ukrainian American, I'm Jewish, I'm <laughs> vegan, I don't sacrifice animals. And Edgar's attitude was always that the spirit chooses whom it will. And who is he to interfere with that? He absolutely accepted me as his daughter. And I called him my papa. And that was our relationship. Um, a lot of people have thought that he would never have shown a white American the same things that he would teach someone else. And what Edgar would always say to me is, I'm going to give you everything I know. And that's what he did. That was, that was a pretty awesome gift. With the other people who were practicing Vodou in Haiti, I don't know, was it a little bit weird between you being a white Ukrainian Jewish lady and in the rest of the community, like even if your papa was so welcoming, yeah, was everybody else? Pretty much, actually. I know that there are people who feel very differently, and I understand that. Um, there's certainly a lot of people in the U.S. who feel very differently and are pretty upset with me. And I get that. White people have taken everything from black people. It was a religion that came out of slavery. So I completely understand that. In Haiti, I'd have a, a just a couple of almost humorous encounters. There was a mambo there who was pretty intimidating. She was a fierce mambo and really talented. This what, woman what made her could, so intimidating? She was big. She was powerful. She could 
she could wring the neck of a chicken, pluck it, and have it in the pot cooking in like 60 seconds. You know? and, <laughs> you're, was, and you're vegan. And I'm vegan. She so, was amazing. <laughs> and she didn't really, when I first went to Haiti, I thought that I could get by with French. And I discovered that people in the Voto community speak Haitian Creole, not French. So I had a hard time at first understanding people. And by the time I met this particular Mambo, I could hear her say, she'd look at me and say to her friends, white people make me sick. They give me a headache. She would say in Haitian Creole, and I'd be just like, oh, Lord. And at the end of the time that I spent with her, I mean, we were learning songs, we were learning dances. There was a one very intense ceremony and she said in Creole that she needed a knife. And I instantly handed it to her, not even translating. I just handed it to her. And she looked in my eyes and I could see she realized I heard what she said. I understood what she said about <laughs> white people giving her headache. And, but I just sort of smiled and we went on. And by the last day that I spent with her, we were all dancing and singing. It was like, a, I don't know, a 14-hour ceremony that was going on and on and on. And I'm very self-conscious. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, Lord, she's, she's just horrified at me dancing. And um, finally, she looked up and she said in Creole, the white mambo can dance. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I'd won her over. So can you tell me a little bit more about what this initiation ceremony is? Mm-hmm. There's a lot I can't say because you take oaths before the spirit. To of course. Keep- most of it's secret, but it's called couche, which means to go to sleep or to put to bed. And um, you're laying on your left side for six days and um, you're told to dream. And there are occasional ceremonies that punctuate those six days that are very intense. And, um, And the rest of the time from the minute I went in there, I couldn't tell if I was dreaming, hallucinating, having visions, if things were really happening that I thought were happening. Go in, um, go in where? Like, could you, where? You're in an isolation chamber, basically. Oh, like it, like a big room? Small room, actually. Small room. And um, I felt like I was being stripped of everything that I used to identify myself. So emotionally and psychologically and physically and spiritually. I was just really raw. And one night I was going through a dark night of the soul that, you know, I was just thinking you are the most sorry excuse of initiate <laughs> on the planet earth. And, and you're such a failure. And, and what do you think you're doing? And, and the Loa have no use for you. And Edgar came in. And I couldn't tell if he was really there or if I'd imagined him, but he talked with me for a couple of hours. And at the end of that conversation, I was able to crawl back down off the ceiling and and, um, was able to say to, to the spirit that, okay, this is me. This is what I've got. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. And just do with me what you can. And it saved me. And it gave me the power to to come through the initiation. The day after the initiation, Edgar came to the place I was staying at that point. Uh And I told him that I had seen him and had this conversation and asked him if, if he was really there. 
And he said, I was there, all right. And he continued to launch into every subject that we talked about. Now, the weird thing is, Edgar spoke only Haitian Creole. He didn't speak French, he didn't speak English. I spoke French and English, and we understood each other perfectly both times. And I had a friend um, that I was staying with who heard the whole conversation. He couldn't believe it, that the two of us speaking in different languages and completely communicating and understanding each other. Oh, my God. I I went recently to uh, uh, an art exhibit where you just sat in a room that was totally dark for mm-hmm. for like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes or so. And even that was a pretty intense experience. Yeah. Of just like 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> and this initiation, I think, is is symbolic of the experience in the, the Middle Passage, that you're in the, the hull of some slave ship and your life is not your own anymore. You're in the hands of other people and you don't know where it's going. You don't know. I mean, when I first went, I didn't know anybody there. Yeah, and I wonder, like, before you went down to Haiti for this initiation ceremony, what what did your family think about this? Did you talk to them about kind of moving away from Judaism or like moving well, to this? Well, my parents were actually both hardcore atheists. Oh, okay. And um, they had been very concerned when I was younger that I was into what I called unthings. And um, my father even required that I write an essay about my beliefs because he was so alarmed that I was spiritually oriented. And he was great about it. When I gave it to him, he said that he agreed with some things. He disagreed with some things. He didn't understand some things, but he was just glad that I was thinking. And that's all he was concerned about, that I wasn't becoming mesmerized with some cult or something. But both of my parents had passed by the time I went to Haiti. I I absolutely love that your dad made you write an essay. I I don't know why. I just think that's so funny that like, okay, if you're going to get into these things, like I'm going to need some reasons. But um, I have an uncle or had an uncle who was a Kabbalist, which is Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. Oh, yeah. And he was heading to, um, to Israel to speak to the rabbinical council. And that, morning I was on the front page of the New York Times because I had done a ceremony a, a ceremony in the street to fight crime in my neighborhood and it made the front page of the New York Times and he called me to say how proud he was of the work I was doing and he was going to go show the rabbinical council and talk to them about how Jews today are are interfacing in community and in urban settings. And so the, and I was just really blessed with a very accepting and genuinely spiritual family. I think they weren't locked into any particular religious dogma. Speaking of like sort of uh, some of the aspects of Vodou, I'd like mm-hmm. to just kind of do a quick rapid fire questions along some of the myths, some of the mm-hmm. preconceptions about it. So I'm just going to, I'm not to get, you know, I'm going to try not to be offensive or say anything too stupid, Uh, (laughs) but, but just if you could give me some basic answers. Okay. Cool. Okay. Voodoo dolls. Are you sticking pins and dolls and sending people curses? Nope. (laughs) That's the quick answer. Um, In Haiti, nobody uses voodoo dolls or no pins stuck in anything. 
Um, they, you might see a doll on an altar, but it's representing a spirit in the same way that a sculpture on a Catholic altar would represent a saint. Do you perform any black magic? I do not. And I would consider even people's ideas of doing a love spell to force somebody to fall in love with you. I consider that black magic. Okay, so no black magic, and you even no take you take kind of a, even a harder stance on what counts as yeah. black magic. Okay, that's right. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. <laughs> I'm a vegan. Um, <laughs> you know, in the, in that the, sounds. This sounds like it's going to be a hard no. This is a hard no. Do you want the explanation behind that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, a little more involved. Um, <laughs> In the early days of the of the colonies in Saint Domingue, the Spanish Inquisition that had already used these really vilifying, ugly images about Jews applied those same images to Afro Caribbeans. So they they slaughter babies and they eat them and they have depraved orgies. They mm-hmm. um, you know all of that stuff. Classic things for Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, they're really effective, though. It's hard to get that out of your head once you've seen that. And then finally, Hollywood, you know, nailed the nailed the coffin. Yeah. And it sells more tickets. It gets more butts and seats to talk about zombies and, and cannibalism or whatever else. Are you worshiping the devil? One time when I was in Haiti, that's going to be a hard one, too. But one time when I was in Haiti, I met a wonderful priest and artist named Andre Pierre, and he told me he had a portrait of the devil in his hut. And he was going to show it to me. So he went back in his hut and came out. And he said, here's a portrait of the devil. And he opened up a dollar bill. And he said, your religion is the economy and you worship the devil. And it's like, <laughs> got us there. So U.S. economy, yes to devil worship. Yeah. Voodoo, hard no. <laughs> hard no. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Sacrifices. So sacrifice means to make sacred. And this is where I'm extremely controversial because I don't sacrifice animals. I don't do blood sacrifices. And for a lot of people, the loa, the spirits need life force to walk across. They need the blood. Even when they're the most bloodthirsty spirits and they're showing up in Haitian people that are participating in the ceremony and I ask them if they're okay with the offerings that I've given. And they say, yeah, just give something that means the same to you. So you do do some sacrificing, but not animals. Right. But other people do animals. Yes. But not humans. Not humans that I know of. (laughs) Okay. Last, Last one of kind of the rapid fire myth section. Okay. Voodoo or voodoo? Voodoo, spelled V-O-O-D-O-O, is the Hollywood tourist idea. Um, the voodoo dolls, all of that okay. stuff you just listed. Yeah, all the um, myths I've been going through. That's voodoo. Yeah, and is is confused with hoodoo, which is a magical folk practice of spellcraft using herbs and roots and things like that. Voodoo, V-O-D-O-U, and there's also other spellings, but that's the Haitian Creole spelling, is the religion. Oh, okay, this has been good. I feel like we've knocked off like a bunch of <laughs> bullshit myths and things like that that a we lot need of to myths. get. We need to get through. Um, what is a possession trance? So I can describe for you what it feels like to me. What I what I always say to people is that I'm an initiated mambo asagwe, and that 
only means that I'm an authority on my experience of voodoo. I'm not the authority on all of voodoo. So in my experience, uh, there'll come a point in the ceremony where visually everything is reaching hyper clarity. Um, it's like you're seeing it in a crystal ball and mm. time is, is altering. So time seems to be slowing down. Things seem to be moving in slow motion. Um, I get an elongated view of where my perception is centered. So I feel like I'm incredibly tall looking down at, at somebody else's feet. Huh. And being an erotic Jew, I usually have a whole conversation with myself about this isn't really happening. You just need attention. You know, you're really pathetic and sad. <laughs> and, so you're like and, still pretty cognizant. You're still like thinking and have a kind mm-hmm. of track going on in your head while this is all happening. Right. There's somebody in me observing what's happening. And at some point that conversation gets so irritating that <laughs> I just kind of shut it down and focus on serving, that serving my community that's in the temple with me and serving the Loa that there's a point of agreement, I guess you could say, where I shut down that little voice in my head and just let it fry out. And the next thing you know, everybody's staring at you and you're in a completely different place physically than you were before. You have no memory of what happened during possession trance. But I do feel a kind of physical sense of awe in my body. And I feel like my electromagnetic frequency has been altered, that it's been revved up. It feels different. And the paramount thing is that you can feel that something special, something elevated is happening and you can feel the energy of it. Like as an observer, I would be able to sort of feel like the shift in energy in a room. Mm -hmm. And I think so. Yeah. And it's, people are being possessed by spirits in this situation or? Yes. Okay. And you know, we've all got in our heads when you hear possession, yeah. you're thinking of demonic possession and yeah. you're thinking uh, about, thinking the, about the exorcist. It's not like that. And I don't feel that I'm being shut down or shut out or um, compressed in any way. There's nothing evil about it. It's um, more like an expansion And I get really tired sometimes of seeing the world in the way that I do. And being possessed by various different spirits over a period of time and seeing the world through their perspective is very convincing that that we're all interpreting all the time. And that it's actually, to me, really healthy to be able to put aside that um, hold that the my normal identity has over me. I don't know. Like thinking about the stigma of it, you know, the exorcist view where, you know, you're being possessed, the devil's making you do horrible stuff to the way you describe it as a way of kind of like elevating, opening up your mind, getting away from yourself and in some ways shedding a lot of that ego. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be so radically different than our perceptions. Exactly. And if there's one thing I could say to people is just throw away everything you think you've ever heard or know about voodoo and experience it. That's why I do a lot of public ceremony and why 
the public is always welcome at my ceremonies because I can sit here defending Vodou and apologizing for it till I'm blue in the face, but until somebody actually experiences it and realizes that it's um, experienced as a blessing, not as, a, as an evil thing, you know, nothing, nothing replaces that experience. It has to be firsthand. And if I do create an altar to my ancestors, should I leave some of the food and things that they like? Absolutely. So like my, my uncle, my uncle, great uncle Joe, huge fan of sauerkraut. I should just leave yeah. him like a jar of sauerkraut would be great. I'd do it. I'd okay. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I just want to say like, thank you so much, Sally, for being on the show. This is a 180 for, I think, probably a lot of people who might have heard of voodoo or voodoo and have like this Hollywood conception of it. And I think you've just done such a tremendous job of showing like how it's an interesting religion, how it's so thought provoking and how it's so like positive for your uh, you as an individual and, you know, you spiritually as well. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Hey, thanks for listening. Sally Ann's pretty amazing, right? If you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, give us a review over in the iTunes store. It really helps in getting the word out. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Weird Work. Send us a message and let us know who you think we should have on the show next. We always love hearing from you guys. Okay, that's all. See you next week. 